Let's turn in the scriptures to John chapter 10. We're reading the gospel according to John and asking God to shape our lives with his word here. I've often pointed out that a gospel is like an ancient newspaper. It's recording the best news ever. Gospel means good news. It's a newspaper. It's recording the best news ever. It's the news. Basically, God has provided a way for the universe to be rid of the curse of sin and death. And all of that is through God's chosen king, Jesus of Nazareth. He proved that he can forgive sin and that he can beat death. Of course, the Bible has four accounts of the gospel. The gospel according to Matthew, the one according to Mark, the one according to Luke, and the one according to John. John is the second shortest after Mark, and John has become the best known. John was a close friend of Jesus, lived with him for about three years, and he was convinced through his personal encounter with Jesus that Jesus was the creator made human that he was God's chosen king to rule forever on earth. He had the power to rid the universe of the curse. So John wrote this gospel to compel people to answer two questions. Who is Jesus? Most important question in the world. Who's Jesus? And will I believe him? Will I commit my life to him? These are the two central concerns that John, this gospel writer, is driving at. Chapter 10, if you look at it, I asked you to open there, it seems like it picked up right where chapter 9 left off. There's no introductory statement. Jesus just simply keeps on talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says. It seems like it picked up right where chapter 9 left off. So in order to get the ball rolling, you have to kind of remember what was in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, that's where Jesus healed this man who had been born blind. That healed man was then interrogated repeatedly by the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And eventually, because that healed man sided with Jesus, the religious leaders kicked him out of the religious community there in Jerusalem. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. That's how the chapter ends. And Jesus reassures this man who's just been ostracized. He reassures him that his eyes have been opened in more than one sense. That he's been cured of his blindness, not only of his physical blindness, but because he recognizes that Jesus is the Son of Man, God's chosen King to rule forever on earth. It's clear that he's actually been rid of his spiritual blindness as well. But Jesus says, those who reject me as the Son of Man, those who reject me as God's chosen King, their blindness and their guilt remain. And that's right where John 9 ended, with Jesus talking about these religious leaders who refuse to recognize God's chosen King. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they'll not follow. They'll flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I'm going to try to put it just simply. Jesus compares himself to the shepherd here. And he compares the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to the sheep in the pen. And I think maybe he's referring here to his father as the gatekeeper. Don't find too many people that agree with me on that, but that's my, that's my guess. Jesus is basically echoing Ezekiel's words about selfish shepherds in Israel. That's in Ezekiel 34. And he basically says there are many, many unauthorized people who've tried to enter the nation Israel and make flocks of their own. And he's implying that's exactly what's happening with these Pharisees who are actually kicking out the true sheep. They're selfish, ambitious leaders. But Jesus, by contrast, is the authorized shepherd. He's the one who can truly come into this nation and call out God's people, those who truly belong to God. And by implication, Jesus is saying, I've called out this religious, or sorry, this healed man that the religious leaders have excommunicated, and he belongs to me. And all those religious leaders who've kicked him out, they are thieves and robbers. They are unauthorized to be leaders over God's sheep. Jesus' audience didn't understand that clearly, so he kept explaining, and he used two different illustrations. He says again, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. That's the first illustration, that Jesus is the door or the gate. He's the only way anyone can truly be secure in God's flock. And of course, he's contrasting himself with the leaders who think that they are the gate. They say who's in and who's out. Verse 8, all who came before me, claiming to be leaders, claiming to be messiahs, they're thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then Jesus shifts to the second metaphor. I'm the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not the shepherd of the sheep, he doesn't own the sheep. This hired hand sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and doesn't really care for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. You just got to park here. Jesus says this kind of thing all throughout the gospel according to John, and I haven't been able to address it and and seize on it every time it's appeared. But here, we've just got to realize this is incredible. Jesus is saying, end of verse 14, I know my own sheep and they know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The relationship that Jesus has with his sheep is patterned after the way Jesus, God the Son, relates with God the Father. 
In other words, this is the warmest, closest, most enduring, purest love in the universe. That's the way Jesus loves his sheep. Whoa. He says, and I lay my life down for my sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's referring to the nations, the Gentiles, all the non-Jews that he's interested in saving. And he says, I must bring them also, and they'll listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus is saying, God the Father loves me because I perfectly obey him all the time. And my death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb is the climactic evidence that I obey my Father in every particular. So verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews. Because of these words, many said, this guy's demon-possessed, he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, this is not the way a demoniac talks. These are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. And can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You have to note again here that John is drawing, again, this major theme of division. Jesus splits humanity. He has brought it up in chapter 7, in chapter 9. John is wanting everyone to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? And that question splits humanity. Is he a lunatic, a crazy man, or is he the son of man whom God has chosen to rule forever on earth? At that time, verse 22, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. This allows us to date what's happening in chapters 9 and 10 as just a couple months before the crucifixion because the feast of dedication is Hanukkah sometimes also called the Feast of Lights. This is what the Jews, by this time in history, had been remembering for some 190 years or so. In 164 BC, Judas Maccabee entered the temple and rededicated it for God after Antiochus IV had desecrated it. And the Jews from that time forward, from 164 BC on, remembered the rededication of the temple at this feast of dedication. It was an eight-day feast. This is in early December when chapter uh, 10 is taking place, and we know, therefore, that it's just a couple months before Jesus is crucified. At that time, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I've told you and you don't believe me. Now let's get it. Jesus is not directly answering their question and he's doing so very intentionally because they are coming to him basically saying, give us the evidence we need to arrest you for blasphemy. 
and formal execution. But Jesus answers saying, essentially, I've told you in multiple ways at multiple times and you've not believed. He's pointing back to what he's already taught and the works he's already done. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This has already happened twice in the gospel, in chapter 5 and in chapter 8. The Jews clearly picked up that Jesus was claiming oneness with God. He was claiming to be God. And they wanted to stone him because of that astounding claim that they thought was blasphemous. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of those works are you going to stone me? They answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, a mere human, make yourself God. They picked up his claim. Jesus answered, isn't it written in your law, I said you're gods? And that's a quotation of Psalm 82. It's a quotation that many people scratch their heads over. It's where... God is confronting Israel's rulers, maybe behind them demonic forces. So these may be kings and angels or both. And he's referring to them as divine ones, those who bear the divine image. And he refers to them explicitly in Psalm 82.6 as gods. And Jesus reasons, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken, means it's authority, is unassailable. Are you going to say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I claim to be the Son of God? Jesus is not suggesting that there are many gods. He's not suggesting that he is merely a human king or an angel. He's not using Psalm 82 like that. Instead, he's basically trying to stall their opposition toward him by saying, do you really know the scriptures? Is your concern really biblical? And trying to point them back to everything he's been saying and doing. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. John 10. Wow. The Spirit of God moved John to write this account of the gospel And you better believe wherever God's Spirit is at work, God's Son, Jesus, is going to get magnified. And that's what happens wonderfully here in John 10. I want to do my best to explain how Jesus is magnified, and the best I can do right now is by unpacking the chapter in five ways. So if you ask, who is Jesus? 
You want to understand who Jesus is, this chapter unveils his glory in five ways. And first, it's this, that Jesus is the shepherd. He's God. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you've got to first understand he's the shepherd. And this means, most fundamentally, Jesus is God. It's obvious from this chapter that Jesus of Nazareth did not think of himself as any mere human. He was truly human, but he was beyond human. He was more than human. He was the God-man. Jesus claimed first to have a unique relationship with God. I've pointed this out a couple times in the reading, but he claims to know God in a very personal way. He claims that he is the perfectly obedient son who is uniquely loved by God, and He claims that he only does what God the Father has given him to do. And that includes giving life to people, according to verse 10. He's claiming in every one of these senses to be God. Okay? But further, verse 30, Jesus claims to be one with the Father. Wow. And... Twice in this chapter, verses 11 and 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Okay? I just pointed out about a half dozen ways in which Jesus claims to be God. There is no mistaking it. Jesus of Nazareth did not think of himself as a mere human. He believed himself to be God become man. That was Jesus' self-view. Okay? You say, wait, wait, the good shepherd. What do you mean, that's God? I could develop the rest of the message with this, but I'm actually only going to give about a minute to it, okay? I've just got to prove to you that when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's claiming to be God, okay? Just think with me. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 100 says, The Lord, he is God. It's he who made us. We're his. We're the sheep of his pasture. The sheep of whose pasture? The Lord, the one who's God. Could go further. Isaiah 40. There's this anticipation that the Lord God will come with might. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. The Lord God will come and shepherd his people. Similarly, Ezekiel 34, 15. You might jot this next to John 10, 11. Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. The Lord saying, I'm going to personally be the shepherd of my people. I'm forever going to give them the rest that they need. I will seek the lost. He says in Ezekiel 34, 16, I'll bring back the strain and I will bind up the injured. Simply put, when Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, he was claiming to be the Lord God. That's why it's right for people, like they did in verses 20 and 21, to wrestle with the question, is this man a lunatic? Because he's claiming to be God. Second, Jesus is the door of the pen as well as the shepherd of the flock. That means he's the only way to God. And here's where things get a little bit complicated, but stick with me, okay? 
I'm going to approach it this way. If you look back at verse 30, Jesus claims, I and the Father are one. Jesus is clearly not saying, I and the Father are one person. That's not what he said. In fact, that makes no sense if that's what he meant. But he was doing more than simply saying, I and my Father are one in heart. We're one in purpose. We have a united burden. He wasn't saying we're one person, but he wasn't simply saying, I and my Father have a shared goal. Okay? The only way that you can rightly interpret verse 30, you might want to jot this reference next to it, is if you read the first two verses of the gospel. That's the key to unlocking what's meant when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In John 1, verses 1 and 2, John explains that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. That's not easy to understand. (laughs) Wait, wait, Jesus is God, but he's with God. And this is where we have to come back to what John is driving at in basically every chapter of his gospel, and that is the truth of the Trinity, that the one true God has revealed that he is one being eternally existing in three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. Jesus is both God and Jesus is with God. This is the way God revealed himself. This is the way Jesus revealed himself and revealed the one true God, that he was God and that he was with God. This is something that we cannot fully wrap our minds around because God is holy, holy, holy. He is a type of being, we might say, that is completely alone in his class. There is no other being like our God. That's why we say holy, holy, holy. He is utterly unique. That's why we struggle to understand what he's revealed about himself. So Jesus here, when he says, I'm the shepherd, he's not simply saying that he's God. He's also saying that he is the only way to God. And that's why he says, I'm the door to the sheep, or to the pen, and it's why he says that he's the shepherd who, I'm quoting verse 28, gives his sheep eternal life. He's bringing them into the security of the Father's grip. So he's the only one who can make humans have an eternally secure relationship with God, the Father. Another way of saying this is Jesus is claiming to be the only God and he's also claiming to be the only way to the Father. That's John 1, 1 and 2 worked out in greater detail. Third aspect of Jesus' glory is that Jesus is the sacrificial shepherd. The last aspect that he is both God and the way to God, that'll blow your mind. 
this one will wow you forever. Jesus emphasizes four times in John 10 that he's the shepherd who voluntarily gave his life for the sheep. He emphasizes it in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. And this is precisely the way that he brings people into the security of the Father, a secure relationship with the Father into the eternal kingdom of God. It is by laying down his life for the sheep. He is bearing the punishment that other people deserve so that he can offer us forgiveness. He's bearing the punishment I deserve so that he can offer me forgiveness. And by taking his life again, Jesus says, I lay it down and I take it up again. He's saying that he can conquer death and he can promise to everyone who follows him eternal life, resurrected life. I can raise myself from the dead. I can raise you from the dead. That is the power he has to rid the universe of sin and death. That's the power he has to forgive individuals of sin and raise individuals to life. The way Jesus makes us secure is through offering himself for us. And I say this will wow you because this makes Jesus a shepherd like no other. Right? When he claimed to be the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he is claiming that he has a kind of love for us that is beyond our ability to comprehend because this is not how shepherds act. Jesus is saying, I'm a shepherd like no other. This is where the metaphor just gets blown apart. It gets exploded. Because why did shepherds keep sheep? Well, they would care for the flock so that eventually they could maybe sell their wool. Or maybe they could sell the sheep for meat. Or maybe they would sell the sheep for a sacrifice. The shepherds in the ancient world were businessmen. They would make money off of the sheep. And Jesus says, no, no, I care about my sheep. I care about them like no shepherd ever cared for sheep. I've come to intentionally, voluntarily give my life for my sheep. Mind blown. That is the love of Jesus. His self-sacrificial love for me personally makes him the kind of shepherd I want to follow. The love that our shepherd has for us makes him the kind of king who has an authority that I can submit to, that I want to submit to. That's love. That's our shepherd. So he is the shepherd he is the shepherd who leads us into the presence of God. He is the, shep- the shepherd who sacrifices himself and lays down his life for the sheep. Fourth aspect of Jesus' glory, he's the summoning shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. Jesus says again four times in the chapter that all of the sheep that God's given him, the Father's given him, will hear his voice and follow him. As it were, He's the one who can step into the sheep pen and he can say, all my sheep, come here. We're going out. 
They're going to hear his voice. They're going to follow him. With this metaphor, Jesus is illustrating a significant truth that everyone here, whether you're a Christian or not, needs to understand. And that is this. Jesus summons his sheep. And his sheep can be recognized by their response to his summons. If you're a follower of Jesus, there was a point in your life when you were summoned by the shepherd. It doesn't mean that you're invited. Jesus truly invites people. But the concept here in John 10 is that the shepherd summoned you. He didn't just invite you. He called you. He, as a summoning shepherd, commanded you to follow him. And like we sang last week, and and can it be, I rose, went forth, and followed him. His call was effective. It was powerful. It was mighty in my life. He summoned us to follow him. And that's why the New Testament writers can call us as the church the called or the summoned. Right? Probably the most famous passage in which this occurs is Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good for those who are the called, the King James says. For those who are called, summoned according to his purpose and will. If you are the called then God's going to see to it that every single circumstance of your life, including the most painful, somehow harmonizes to be for your good and for his glory. Doesn't mean the circumstance is good, but God can, can work it for good for those who are the called ones. Incredible. The called ones. You weren't just the invited ones. You were the powerfully summoned ones, the ones who were summoned by the shepherd. That's your identity. And to go further, the way you can identify Jesus' sheep is that they follow his summons. They obey his voice. This doesn't mean that we're perfect in our obedience, but we are persevering in our obedience. So, if what Jesus says, like, what he says in his word, what he says about sex, what he says about love, what he says about humility and ambition, what he says about money, what he says about how you use your tongue. If Jesus' words are basically take it or leave it, like, they don't matter all that much. You're not his sheep. Because the voice of the shepherd doesn't matter to you. Let me describe another situation. You may be someone like me, and you say, I'm following Jesus, but I'm, I'm pretty awful at it. I mess up all the time, multiple times a day as a follower of Jesus. It grieves me sometimes. Sometimes I wish I could stray my shepherd just brings me back. I can't escape his word. It's true. Sometimes I wish it weren't true, but it is. It's proof that you're a sheep. 
because his voice matters. So I want to ask, have you heard his summons? I wonder if Jesus is summoning you right now. He's saying, follow me. I'm the shepherd. I'm God become man. I'm the only way that you can be right with God and forever secure. You need to turn from being your own authority. And you need to say, Jesus, I hear who you are. I hear your claim. And I'm going to follow you. Hear the shepherd's voice, his summons, and respond. Commit your life to him. Fifth aspect of Jesus' glory is he's a seeking shepherd. He must bring other sheep. (laughs) I want to end right here in verse 16. It's where Jesus describes himself to these Jewish religious leaders as the shepherd who must bring into his flock other sheep which are not of this fold. This means that Jesus was a missionary shepherd. He had to go after non-Jews. He cares about all people including the people that respectable religious people write off as hopeless. Jesus is a universal shepherd, we would say, in that he loves people of every ethnicity, of every language, of every skin color, of every nation, and of every background. Jesus loves people. He loves all people, people of every kind. It's this impulse that every one of us as his followers will grow in as we keep close to him. If you claim to be a Christian, you claim to follow the shepherd, but you increasingly get cliquish as a Christian, and you close yourself off from non-Christians, from the people who need the good shepherd, you are becoming dangerously like the Pharisees. You're looking more and more like the Pharisees rather than the good shepherd. Jesus is a missionary shepherd. He must go after the lost. And his flock reflects him only if we too are missionary, if we continue to grow in our outward focus. That's the kind of shepherd we have. That's the kind of flock we're in. So I end with a very simple conclusion. That is the main point of John 10, simply as I can put it at this point. Jesus is both the Lord as well as the only shepherd who can lead people into security with God the Father. He is the Lord, and he is the one who can lead us to God the Father, where we can be forever secure. That's who Jesus is. That's John's driving concern. Do you understand who Jesus is? And if you want to be forgiven of sin and death, if you want to experience life without the curse, you must respond to Jesus' claims about himself and choose to follow him for the rest of your life. All people of every nation, language, ethnicity, background must choose to follow Jesus if they are going to be forgiven of sin, be granted eternal life, 
they must respond to his claims and follow him the rest of their lives. If you have committed your life to Jesus, your life today is not easy. But your outlook's good. Cling to this today, believers. If you have run to Christ, you have eternal life. You will never perish, and no one will ever snatch you out of the Father's hand. God, use your word to powerfully feed us so that our faith will be strong. We love Jesus. We want to love him more. Thrill us today with his glory so that we'll renew our commitment and deepen our commitment to him. God, I pray that you'd use your word to summon other sheep who are not yet in the flock. Be glorified today, Lord. We'll give you all the glory. On the authority of Jesus, we pray. Amen.